Amen. So Genesis chapter 16, up to this point, we've seen God has given uh, Abram uh, just a lot of promises. We read in, in chapter 15, just one page back, right? Chapter 15, verse 6. And he believed the Lord and it uh, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And now we move into chapter 16. And what we see is we find that um, Abram's faith is faltering a little bit here. And he's been in the promised land. We're going to see this. He's been in the promised land for 10 years now. He's 85 years old. When he left Haran, he was 75 years old. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, turn back another page. Uh, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And we're going to read in verse 16, coming up in our chapter, that he's going to have this son. The son's going to be born to him. And at that time, he's going to be 86 years old. So you do the math. He left Haran at 75. He has a kid at 86. Minus one year. This, this uh, chapter 16 covers a year at the beginning of the chapter. is before uh, Hagar gets pregnant. It's one year gestation, basically. So you do the math. Uh, 75 minus 80, well, 85 minus 75 minus 1. 10 years. There is an easier way to figure it out. Just read verse 3. It says that he's been in the land for 10 years. So if, you're, if you don't like the math, just, just read, right? So it says that he's been in the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is, is what we know today as the land of Israel. And he's been there for the past 10 years. And he's had promises of God. God has made him promises. And he's held on to these promises for 10 years. And they don't seem to be coming about. They seem to, you know, like, phew, you, I mean, just put yourself in his shoes. He's longing for the fulfillment of the promise. He's probably waking up every day just wondering, Lord, is this the day that I'm going to see the fulfillment of the promises you made to me? And maybe you're in a similar situation tonight where God has promised you something. Uh, maybe, you know, you were reading your Bible and a verse just kind of jumped off the page at you. God gave you that verse to hang on to. Um, you know, maybe, you know, the Lord has spoken something specific to you regarding uh, something he wants to do in you or wants to do through you. And maybe, you know, I mean, unfortunately, sometimes we have these well-meaning friends, but they speak to us and say, you know, that verse really doesn't mean what you think it means when you look at it in context. But you know God has spoken to you. You know, and I'm sure that each person who's hearing my voice tonight has heard the Lord, has heard the Lord speak to them. And, and I, I'm pretty sure that we've all received promises from Him, either through, like I said, that verse that jumps off the page at you, or through a Bible study you heard, through a friend, through a pastor, whatever it may be. And maybe you've waited for the realization of these promises, but they're not coming about fast enough. I mean, it's been a long time. It's just slow and coming. And, and I'm sure, again, Maybe, uh, probably many of you, if not all of you, you know, know exactly what I'm talking about, have, have experienced this or, 
or has been through something like this, where you've just held on to uh, promises that God has given to you. You've kept them in your heart. And, you know, you refer back to those promises in times of discouragement. And maybe you encourage yourself even by saying, you know, um, hang in there. You know, the God... God has given you these promises and God is faithful. And just in a, like I say, an attempt to encourage you, but the weight, Tina, please silence your phone. Not to throw my wife under the bus or anything like that, you know. Don't cut that out, Rhea. <laughs> Let the whole church know Tina's not, no. <laughs> anyway, yeah, but you know, what I was saying is the weight is overwhelming. It's just overwhelming. But nonetheless, you know what? You hang on to the promise. You persevere, you know, just believing that God's going to do it. And the longer you wait, the harder it gets. We need to remember Hebrews 6, 12. And there the verse, the writer to the Hebrews, he encourages us. He says, do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It's through faith and patience that we inherit the promises of God. When God makes a promise to us, faith believes that promise of God. And we anticipate the fulfillment of that promise in hope. And again, never ever forget the biblical definition of hope. It's the absolute assurance of good things to come. And then it's in patience that we wait for the fulfillment of that promise. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God in Him, in Christ Jesus, for all the promise of God in Him are yes, and in Him, uh, amen. Uh, so what it says is all the promises in Christ Jesus, for all of us that are found in Christ Jesus, all the promises of God in Him are yes, and in him, amen, which amen means certainty. It means truth. It means so be it. And it's to the glory of God through us that those promises are yes and amen. And you know what? God never changes his mind in regards to his promises towards us. He's never going to go back on his words. His promises are irrevocable. He's never going to withdraw him, and none of his promises will go unfulfilled. And here, you know, God had made promises to Abraham and to his seed that they would be, um, that he would be as the stars of heaven. But now Abraham's getting old, and he's convinced his family, again, just a little bit of background, put yourself in his shoes, he's convinced his family to, to pack up and move from Ur the Chaldees because God has told him, do that. I'm going to promise you. He's given him promises of blessing. And years and tears have passed and nothing seems to be happening. Sarah is 75 years old. She feels like she's past the age of childbearing. So she's going to concoct this plan to get them a child. She feels like... You know, she needs to get the ball rolling. You know, if, if she doesn't get the ball rolling, you know, the, the waiting just seems like a waste of time to her. So she's got she's to, like, help things out. She feels like she needs to take issues in her own hands, just take matters in her own hands, or else it's never going to happen. That's where Sarah's at. And so we read in, in 
verse 1, chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Where did uh, Sarai get this Egyptian maidservant? Well, if you've been studying with us through the book of Genesis, you know that um, once Abraham got into the land of Canaan, right, God appeared to him and God gave him these wonderful promises. God was doing beautiful things in, in Abram's life. And then this famine came upon them, right? And uh, what does Abram do? Well, instead of seeking the Lord for his provision and his protection, Abram thinks, boy, you know what? I need to take things in my own hands. And, you know, it just seems to be this theme that we're seeing in their, in their life, and it's not working out, going to work out well. But Abram, he, he takes this, this, makes this decision based on, on his own wisdom, based on his own strength, and they head down to Egypt. Egypt is always a type of the world. He went to the world for help, and while he was down there, he acquired a lot of wealth, right? Remember? He lied about Sarai being his sister. And, uh, you know, Pharaoh, guys from Pharaoh's camp come see her. She's a babe. She looks really good. And so uh, Abram basically, you know, sold his wife into a harem. I mean, he received from Pharaoh riches, right? As he's watching Pharaoh take uh, his wife into his harem. Uh, Genesis 12, 15, 16, we read, The princess of Pharaoh who saw her, Sarai, and commended her to Pharaoh. And the, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. So then, you know, it says he had this. It means like Pharaoh gave these to him, kind of like a dowry, so to speak. Well, it seems that during this time when Pharaoh thinks that um, Sarai is Abraham's sister, Pharaoh gives to Sarai a handmaiden, a maidservant. And not long after, right, the Lord begins to plague Pharaoh and his house because uh, Sarai, and Pharaoh tells Abram, you know what, enough, man, get out of here. And Pharaoh kicks Abram and, and his clan out of Egypt. And uh, Hagar is probably along for the ride at that time. Hagar is acquired as a result of Abram's lapse of faith, a result of him taking matters into his own hands. And, you know, as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, Boy, how crazy is it? This is just the way it works out in our life, too, you know? Like, we make, we make a mistake, and, you know, all of a sudden, those mistakes, they begin to start snowballing, and they get bigger and bigger. And Abram is about to make another really boneheaded move. <laughs> just like, Abram, what are you doing? Uh, you know, it, it would have never happened had he not taken things in his own hands. It would have never happened. This snowball effect of mistake after mistake would have never happened had he not just trusted in the Lord. Had he just trusted in the Lord. It would have never happened had he just trusted in the Lord and sought the Lord's heart for what it is he wanted to do. So verse 2, So Sarah says, to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bear, bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Notice she says the Lord had restrained me from bearing children. And she's right. 
And she doesn't even know how right she is, but that's really what's going on. It was the Lord who restrained her from having children because he wants to do something that's just incredibly amazing through her. And you know, again, when we have these promises, we need to understand that God's delays are not his denials. You know, um, there are great and wonderful reasons why God delays to work in our life. And we also need to understand during this time in this culture, being barren, that was a great reproach, right? That was a terribly shameful thing. And so it seems like Sarai, she hasn't heard from the Lord the promises that he's given to Abram. She, she didn't receive them. They were to Abram only. Abram has shared them with her. Uh, he's, he's told her what God has spoken to her. And, you know, that was enough to convince Sarai to pack everything up and leave her home there and move to uh, Canaan. But now they're getting older. You know, she's not completely sure that Abram has actually heard from the Lord, maybe, as he's claimed. So, you know, I also want you to notice here, too, it says, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. She's saying, you know, maybe the Lord wants to give us kids through Hagar. Hmm. She says, maybe this is an option so that, you know, I can have children. And it's a decision that's based solely on circumstances. She looks at the situation and reasons within herself. Maybe this is what the Lord's doing. Maybe the circumstances are the confirmation of uh, what the Lord wants to do. And I don't want you to get me wrong here, please. Don't get me wrong. Because we're going to see in Genesis 31 that the Lord actually does work through circumstances to, to direct Jacob. But when that occurs, you know, God, uh, he connects other things with those circumstances to be a confirmation, right? It's never just a maybe or I think this is what the Lord is doing by which we're to make decisions. What we see in Genesis 31 is the Lord uses a change in circumstance in Jacob's life, but he confirms it through uh, a change of heart that he has. He confirms it through wise counselors that he speaks to, and they work together to confirm a word that Jacob have re had received from the Lord. You know, it's never, we, we're to never just look at the circumstances, especially when we're in a difficult situation, to determine God's word for our life. God uses difficult circumstances. He uses difficult situations in our life to shape us and to mold us into the people that he desires us to be. And he'll do that if we'll yield to him. Sarah tell, tells Abram, you know, Hey, we're getting older, okay? My biological clock is ticking, Abe. And, uh, you know, we're not getting any younger, right? My, my clock maybe has stopped, and it would probably be a miracle if you could uh, even have kids at this age. You know, she says, but I got an idea. How about you take Hagar? Because the Lord has restrained me. And this is a very important thing to notice. She says, the Lord has restrained me. And, you know, you take Hagar and raise up, and she'll raise up children <clears throat> for us. 
Now, the reason this is an important uh, thing to note here is because Hebrews 11, the writer to Hebrews is going to tell us that the Lord is going to wait until their physical bodies are as good as dead. The lesson is here is when the Lord tells us he's going to do something, we're to wait for it. You know what? But we get so tired of waiting. That's the problem. The problem is, you know what? I hate waiting. Remember years ago, uh, before there were microwave ovens, remember how long it took to, to bake a baked potato? It was like 45 minutes, an hour. And then this miracle of modern you know, kitchen appliances came by, a microwave. You threw a baked potato in it, and it was done like in, what, 15 minutes? It was crazy. It was like, what? It was mind-blowing, right? But now 15 minutes for a baked potato, that's even too long. You know, you throw Pop-Tarts in the toaster and just you're waiting two minutes for those things to pop and it just seems like an eternity, you know? So, you know, we just hate waiting. And so what happens often is we decide we're going to help the Lord out. So we start applying our own wisdom, our own abilities to the problem. And what we're really doing is just applying the flesh. That's what's really going on. And we create a whole new set of problems that we're going to have to live with. We birth something that will certainly be a problem for us for the long run. And that's part of the picture here. There's waiting. When God does something, He doesn't need our help. A lot of times, He waits so that when He does the thing that He promises to do, Boy, you know what? People say that was God because there's no other explanation for it. There's no way that you could have done anything like that. Our thoughts sometimes are, we need to get involved to help God out. But that's always, that's always, that's always a mistake. Listen, if God has given you a promise and you know it, you know, when a verse is leapt off the, the page of the Bible during your devotions, you know, or you know that the Lord is speaking to you, well, I just want to encourage you, hang on to it and wait on it. Wait for the Lord. See what He's going to do. The Lord and the things He wants to do in our lives, you know, are worth waiting for. So, verse 2 Again, it says, so Sarah said to Abraham, now, uh, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go unto my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Now, culturally, this was an acceptable thing to do. It was fairly common practice for a woman to give her servant to her husband, um, to bring children into the world through them. And essentially, you know, it was like surrogacy. You know, this maidservant would be a surrogate mother is really what it's all about. And in that uh, culture, in that day, that was a legal option. If a woman was barren, she could give her maid, uh, handmaid to his wife to be a second wife, to bear children up for them. And when the child was born, all the man had to say is, this is my son. That was a legal adoption. So in an effort to help God fulfill his own promises to Abram, Sarai allows her husband to go in and have sexual relations with her servant girl in hopes that she would become pregnant. I mean, just saying it, it just sounds weird, right? I mean, come on. It was a custom of that day. It was acceptable by, uh, at that time. 
but it wasn't acceptable to God. That was the problem with it. God doesn't really care what's legal in California and Nevada, right? Just because something's legal in California and Nevada doesn't make it right in God's eyes. God's plan from the beginning is that a man will leave his will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, not to his girlfriend, not to his living partner, not to another man. God's plan from the beginning was that a man would leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, not to his wife's maidservant even. So even though it was culturally acceptable, it wasn't acceptable to God. And, it's, and it did nothing but bring these tremendous, heartbreaking problems into Abram's life and, and their family's life. And we read that as Sarah pres presents this plan to Abram, it says Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Now, I, I'm sure Abram had received good advice from Sarai in the past, but this was extremely uh, a boneheaded move. This was just terrible. God had given them promises over and over and over again. Genesis 12, 2, God said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Genesis 15, 4, Abram was concerned that Eleazar was going to be his servant, you know, his own, uh, not be his servant, but is going to be his heir because he had no son. And God said, one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. God had said to Abram, look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to Abram, so shall your descendants be. Abram so deeply wanted a son. I mean, it's almost like Abram was obsessed with having a son. Remember last week, um, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, we, we saw God come to Abram and said, hey, don't be afraid. I'm your exceedingly great reward. I'm your shield. And remember what Abram said to that? He said, yeah, I know that's really great and all, but I want a son. Remember, Abram's name means exalted father. So I'm sure he's frustrated. Every time he hears somebody cry out his name, hey, exalted father. I mean, it's like a punch in the nose to Abram. He's so, he just wants his son so bad. So maybe when Sarai uh, approaches Abram with her plan, he was so tired of waiting that he, you know, he talked himself into it. He just began uh, thinking, well, maybe this is the Lord. Right? He just talks himself into it. Maybe God will give me a son, but not by the way that I thought he was going to do it. Right? Maybe this is God's way of fulfilling his promise to me. I mean, God said that, it that some would be from my loins. He didn't say anything about being from Sarai. And you know what? Hey, everyone else is doing it. Why not? Well, it doesn't matter what every, everyone else is doing. You know what? If God has given you a promise, stay true to what God has revealed to you. Hold on to his promises. Don't compromise. Verse 3, then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, or to her husband Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So Sarai gives Hagar to be Abram's wife. And, you know, 
Some people have a problem with this. Some people have a problem because the Bible records, you know, this practice of polygamy in a number of uh, different, um, you know, leaders' life that's portrayed in the Bible, right? Um, The mistake is, though, that just because the Bible records it, we can't assume that God condones it. Because God does not approve of this practice at all. You know, just because the Bible records that men had more than one wife, again, it doesn't mean that God approves of it. There are different situations in the Bible. There are different people in the Bible that had um, numerous wives. Solomon had uh, uh, 300 wives, 700 concubines. And it was a problem for him. And just because the Bible records it, again, when the Bible records men's lies and when the Bible records men's sin, it would be foolish to think God approves of that. The Bible is just reporting the facts for us. Well, it says, Sarai gave Abram Hagar to be his wife, but God's not going to accept. He's not going to approve. He's not going to recognize this arrangement. Verse 4, so he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that he had conceived, that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Now, uh, we don't have all the details here, but it would appear again that when Hagar conceives, she, she looks at Sarai with an attitude. And she looks at her and her eyes are saying, hey, you know what? The problem in your marriage is you, Sarai. You know what? Abram and I didn't have any troubles, right? I mean, you're the one that's barren. It's not him. And, uh, you know, she said all of this with just a glance. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about here, right? I mean, you've seen your wife give you the stink eye, you know, and you know exactly what she's saying to you without even uttering a word. She just gives it to you, whatever it is, you know, not Tina, Tina would never give me the stink eye. She's an angel. And so am I. I don't deserve a stink eye. Anyway, you know, uh, our eyes are tremendously communicative, right? You can tell um, when somebody's happy just by looking at their eyes. People flirt with their eyes. You can, you can, um, you know, ascertain if somebody's angry or even if somebody's confused just by looking at their eyes. And Sarai... By looking at Hagar, that there's some, th- some disrespect in this glance that's directed towards her. You know, Hagar is beginning to look down her nose at Sarai. Now, Abram's failure to trust the Lord, again, just causes problem in the family. Now there's this, this strife that's now in the problem. There's this heartache. There's this tension between Sarai and Hagar. And... We're going to see that this tension is just going to increase. It's just going to, you know, it's just going to come to a head. It's just going to be terrible. And this is the beginning of problems between Abram and Sarai also. Abram's failure is going to create problems for him. And for this young boy that's going to be born, Ishmael, that, you know, Abram deeply loves. Verse 5 says, Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. You know, I mean, marriage hasn't changed much, has it? I mean, these, these people, they're, these are very human people. And we can learn a lot from their personalities. You know, what do you do 
when you get into a tense situation, particularly in a family situation. What do you do when you make a mistake and then you realize that you've made that mistake? Says verse five, and Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. My wrong be, uh, oh, does it say it twice? Maybe I copied it twice, I don't know. My wrong be upon you. I gave uh, my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. Here we see Sarai, what she's doing is she's blame shifting, right? Hey, it's not my fault. Sarai claims that she didn't have a role in this at all. She's completely innocent of wrongdoing. You know, it's all you, Abram. <laughs> it's not me. It's you. Instead of owning up to what she had done, you know, she blames Abram. She absolves herself of all responsibility, all wrongdoing. And it seems like that's just part of our, you know, fallen sinful nature. Remember, we saw this in Adam and Eve. Remember, God asked Adam, what have you done? And what did Adam say? Hey, the woman you gave to be with me. I mean, you know, she gave me the tree and I was deceived. It's not my fault, God. You know, it's your fault, actually. It's her fault. Hey, it's anybody's fault, but it's not mine. And then God asked Eve, what is this you've done? And the woman said, it's not my fault. It's not me. The serpent deceived me and I ate. You know, and it seems to be part of our fallen nature to blame someone else for what's occur, occurred instead of taking responsibility for what it is that we've done. We're so quick to see the problem in somebody else. And we tend to be blind to the problems that we have uh, within ourselves. And Sarai, she's just not willing to fess up to the fact that this was actually her idea. Verse 6, so Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. You know, Abram has problems. And what we see here is a major problem in Abram's life is he fails to take the lead in the this, in this situation, especially because he's the spiritual head of the household. He should be in the lead. But you know, Abram just, he doesn't want confrontation. I mean, he seems to be a guy that enjoys the path of least resistance. Sarai says, hey, go sleep with my maid. He says, oh, okay. You know, says, hey, you know, this is all your fault. <laughs> okay. You know, but hey, why don't you just do to her whatever you want to do and quit hassling me? Instead of getting on her knees and repenting, Sarai she becomes abusive and ugly in some way to Hagar. And what does Hagar do when she's under this pressure? Boy, you just see this cascading events of wrong ways to handle the situation. What does Hagar do? She runs from it. She runs away. Nobody in the story is handling, handling the situation the right way. And you know what? Praise the Lord. It just, it's just a picture of His grace. I thank God that we don't read that God just washes his hands of these guys and he starts over. And the reason why that's such good news is if he doesn't blow Abram and Sarai and Hagar, if he doesn't blow them off, you know what? He's not going to wash his hands of us either. You know, he's faithful to us in spite of us. That's such good news. And we read when, when Sarai dealt harshly with her, 
She afflicted Hagar in some way. She begins to abuse Hagar in some way. Hagar flees from her presence. And then verse 7, Now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. So Shur was on the way to Egypt. Hagar is running back to the world. She's trying to escape the hardships that she's facing by running to Egypt, running to the world. And believe me, that's always a mistake. The world has nothing at all that will ever be of value to any of us. There's no help for us uh, to be found in the world. Verse 8, and he said, this is the angel of the Lord speaking to her, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Now notice, God doesn't say, well, God doesn't say Hagar, Abram's wife. What does he say? He says, Hagar, Sarah's maid. God, again, he doesn't recognize this union between uh, Hagar, uh, Sarai's handmaiden, and Abram. He doesn't recognize it. And if you look here, this is really neat, okay? If you look in verse 7, it's the angel of the Lord that has found Hagar. And if you look at verse 9 and verse 10 and verse 11, we see it's the angel of the Lord that's talking to Hagar. Many times in the Old Testament, we see this personage referred to as the angel of the Lord. Now, it can be an angel. Sometimes it is just an angel when it says the angel of the Lord. But here, she's going to call him God and Lord. Okay? Many times when you read about the angel of the Lord, the, the angel of the Lord is identified as the Lord, all caps, meaning Jehovah, in the same verse. So the name tells us that he's not just the Lord, but he's a representation of the Lord. Again, because angel means messenger. So when you see a verse that identifies the angel of the Lord as the Lord, we have both the Lord and the messenger of the Lord in the same verse. Now, theologians, they call this a theophany or a Christophany. We talked about it in, in other studies where it's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God um, before uh, <clears throat> he comes to the earth, uh, born in the manger, born of the Virgin Mary, right? And this is the first time that we see the angel of the Lord in the Bible. And we see it four times here. It's really exciting. This is the first time we have an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not including Melchizedek into that, because if you've been following with us, if you've been going through the book of Genesis with us, we pointed out that Melchizedek, it says in Hebrews 7 that he's like um, the Son of God. If he was the Son of God, the writer to the, book, uh, writer to the uh, Hebrews, he would have written that it was the Son of God. But he says it's like the Son of God. And there's a lot of debate actually whether Melchizedek was a Christophany or not. But it's a very important point to notice here. The first Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ is not to Abram. It's to Hagar. It's not to the heir of the promises, of all the promises, but it's to an Egyptian fugitive. It's not to a man, but it's to a woman. 
not to a person of high rank, high social uh, you know, class. It's to a slave. You know, it's not to a saint. He appears to a sinner. Not to one seeking God. It's not appearing to one that's seeking God. He, he appears to one that's fleeing to the world, that's running away to, uh, towards Egypt. It's, he appears to somebody that's not special in any regard. Somebody whose life has actually fallen apart. You know, Hagar is completely broken here when the angel of the Lord comes to her. And we see that the angel of the Lord finds her at the well. And it's such a beautiful picture of our Savior who came to seek and save the lost. How beautiful is that? It's so important to notice, maybe because, you know, maybe because you're going through something tonight. Maybe, you know, you're tempted to think, man, does the Lord even care what's going on in my life? You know, does he even see how broken I am? You know, I know I'm no one special, but man, couldn't he just care about me a little bit? You know, maybe you're tempted to say, you know, I, I know he sees and comes to the aids of leaders in the church. I know he's talking to Greg Glory. I know he's talking, you know, to John Corson. I know he's talking to Brian Broderson, whoever. But you know what? Does he even care what's going on in my life? Does he even care that I just feel like I can't go on anymore? You know, Hagar is at the bottom of the totem pole in this story. And the Lord appears to her. She's an Egyptian. She's a Gentile. And it's the very first Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. And it's to Hagar. It's so beautiful. Jesus is willing to leave the 99 to seek the one that's lost the one that's in the wilderness, the one that's breaking, the one that's hurting and abused. It says the angel of the Lord found her. While she's trying to escape the pain of the problem, God comes to her. He finds her by this spring. Verse 14, uh, we read, Hagar calls it a well. Now this is the first time that we see the word spring. King James Version um, translates it as a fountain. And uh, this is the first time we see the word spring, fountain in the King James Version. It's the first time in the Bible we see the word well. And, um, you know, as you study through the Bible, what you find is that spring, fountain, well, those, those all speak of refreshing, of living water, of God's provision for his people. And this is so important to see. Hagar's an Egyptian. She's pregnant out of, the, out of the covenant of marriage. You know, she's abused. She's the last person of any importance. And yet she's the first person Jesus appears to before his incarnation. I mean, this is the first time we hear of a spring and a well speaking of refreshing and the Lord comes to her. The Lord talks to her. The Lord knows her name. I tell you what, that, it's always a blessing for me to just hear that. The Lord knows my name. You know, in a sea of seven plus billion people, the Lord knows your name. He knows everything about you. And you know what? Just like he knows everything about Hagar, it's interesting. The Lord now asks her two questions. Says, where have you come from? 
and where are you going? You know, if you find yourself in a difficult situation tonight, I think the Lord would ask you the, the same questions. Hey, where have you come from? How'd you get here? What were the events that led up to this situation that you're facing right now? You know, however you got here, he has you here because he loves you. And then I think he would ask you, where are you going? But it's actually more than that. You know what? It's actually so beautiful. The literal uh, is more than that. It's where do you want to go? What's your will in this? Where do you want to end up? What's your heart? What's the direction you want your life to take? Where are you coming from? And where are you going with all of this? Where do you think you're going to end up if you keep going the way you're going? You know, what is it that you want? You know, I just love it. The Lord would just ask you, where do you want to be? Where do you want to uh, end up? How amazing is it that the Lord appears to this Egyptian woman? <clears throat> he knows her name. He knows all about her, what the situation is that she's facing. She's in the desert. She's headed back to Egypt. And, and, and you know, she shouldn't be going that way. <laughs> I mean, just not to put too fine a point on it. And he seeks her out and he finds her by this spring, this place of refreshment. And he speaks to her, Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. He reminds her of her place, Sarai's maidservant. He says, where have you come from and where do you want to go? If God is speaking to you right now, boy, I just want to encourage you. Will you please, please listen to him? The Lord comes to the one that feels like the most outside of, you know, the group. He comes to the outsider. You know, he comes to those that feel like they can't go on any longer. That feels like they can't survive this trial. It's too much for them. The weight is too great. You know, the people are the most downcast, the most outcast, those that feel like they're the, the outsider, the broken, the lost, the frustrated, the suicidal. They're the ones that he's most interested in. He knows your name and where you've come from. And he wants you to take time to think through things. Where are you coming from? And where's this path that you're on? Where's it taking you? And then where is it that you actually want to be? Where do you want to go? She says to him, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. You know, I'm running from the circumstances is what she says. And, you know, by the way, she's kidnapping Abraham's uh, son, too. Right. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. And I wonder if someone tonight is fleeing from this situation. I wonder if that's not a word from the Lord to you tonight, that you need to return and submit yourself to the authority uh, that's in your life. Verse 10, Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that um, they shall not be counted for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and, your son, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. 
And that's what Ishmael means. The Lord has heard. So Hagar calls his name Ishmael because the Lord had heard her affliction. And please, please, please receive that word tonight. If you're going through a dark place, if you find yourself in a dark place tonight, receive that word. The Lord has heard your affliction. Verse 12 he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence uh, uh, of all his brethren. Now, you know, New King James kind of like dumbs this verse down for us a little bit. Literally, it says he shall be like a wild donkey of a man or a wild ass of a man. And it's speaking about the wild donkey that lived in the, the desert that was actually considered brilliant on one hand because he could survive where no one else could survive. But then on the other hand, he was considered extremely foolish because he couldn't get along with any of the other wild donkeys that were around him because he was very territorial. And the NIV translates it this way. He will live in hostility towards his brothers. And he's saying that Ishmael's nature is going to be strong He's going to be a survivor. He's, he's telling this to Hagar, Ishmael's mom. But you know what? It's going to be, he's going to be difficult to get along with. I mean, even with his brothers. Ishmael is the father of the Arab people today. And the problems we see in the land of Israel today, you know, it's just a lot of just Ishmael and Isaac stuff. You know, they're just not getting along. They're both descendants of Abraham. They both carry his blood in their veins. Now, here's another really neat thing to see, too. The first baby that was born, right, that was named before its birth is actually Ishmael. The second baby born that was named before its birth, who was that? Well, that was Isaac. You know, God knew all along. The problems that we see in the land of Israel today, you know, it's no surprise to God his hand is upon all the nations right now. All the nations of the world, God's hand is upon it right now. His hand is on our nation. You know, things are not in the state of chaos from God's point of view like it is from our point of view, right? He's in control. Everything's headed towards the end that he intends it to be. Everything is headed towards um, the end that he's told us that uh, it was going to look like, what it was going to look like. Things are not out of control. Things are headed in the direction he said they would head in, and the train's going to arrive at the station just at the exact right time. What he's doing is he's aligning uh, things now in the world in just exactly the way that he said he was going to do it. And it's happening before our eyes. It's actually, boy, you know, it's actually pretty exciting to me. You know, we should never get all upset and worried when we see sin or sin. We should look to the Bible and see that this is all part of God's plan and rest and trust in Him. Verse 13 says, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen Him who sees me? She's staggered by this. The Lord, all caps, it means Jehovah, it's Jehovah that speaks to her, and it's Jehovah that she calls, you are the God 
who sees. She's talking to the angel of the Lord, right? She calls the angel of the Lord who speaks to her, Lord, all caps, Jehovah. She calls the angel of the Lord, you are the God who sees. Remember, the angel of the Lord is this pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who she identifies as Jehovah. And you know what it tells us is Jesus is God eternal, almighty. He's the Son of God, and He's God the Son. And we, <clears throat> and what we see here in <clears throat> verse 13, excuse me, is literally what she says is, He's the God that sees me. The idea is that He sees me to care for me, to attend to me. <clears throat> Remember, she's fled these ugly circumstances. She's been abused. She's left her home. She's in the desert alone. She's probably worrying about, you know, she's probably thinking she's going to die. <clears throat> and God comes and reveals himself to her. And she's realizing, you know what? Man, I've never been out of his sight. You know? He's, he's never lost sight of me. He's always seen where I've been and he's always been aware of my situation. And not only has he seen me and that he's aware of me, not only has he seen me, but he's seen me to care for me. So beautiful. And she says, have I also seen him who sees me? And she's saying, I've seen God. I've seen God, the very one that cares for me. You know, if you're safe today, You've heard God's voice also. You've heard God's voice calling you to salvation. And as you read the word, you know what? Uh, you're seeing Jesus. He's, he's beginning to reveal himself to you through the word. And he's the God that cares for you. Verse 14, therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Observe, it's between Kadesh and Bered. Again, this is the first time we see the word well in the scripture. Bir Lahai Roy means the well of him. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> it means the well of him who lives and sees me. It's the fountain of life that we all want to drink from. You know, we all want to drink from that fountain when we're afraid. We all want to drink from that fountain when we feel rejected and dejected. When we're cast down. We want to drink from that fountain when we feel abused, when we're struggling, when we feel all alone. This is a well that never changes. And of course, it's a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a reference to our Savior. He's the spring of refreshment. He sees you to attend to you, to comfort you, to care for you. You're not lost to him. You're not out of his sight. He is t a tender, loving God. Wherever you are tonight, however broken you feel tonight, hey, be encouraged. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart as, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, uh, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. You know, in the world when something gets broken, man, it's time to throw it out. It's worthless. But in the kingdom of God, when something is broken, 
that's when it begins to take on value. Because when a life is broken, that's when God can begin to move, begin to bring the healing, begin to bring the change, to shape you into the image of His Son. You know, it's not until we're broken that He can actually do that work. It's when we come to the end of ourself and the end of our resources, the end of our strength, that's when He can begin to work in our lives. And I believe what we're seeing right here is Hagar's conversion. I believe one day soon, when the Lord comes from His church, we'll see Hagar in heaven. Verse 15, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his name, whom Hagar born Ishmael. So Hagar returns to Sarai. Uh, apparently she apologizes to Sarai. Um, they get things, you know, straight a little bit. We have actual no record of what was said, but it would appear that that's the case. She also goes to Abram and she tells Abram what has occurred. You know, that she saw the Lord. And based on her account, Abram, in obedience to God, names his son Ishmael. You know, and I just wonder too, I wonder if that was a rebuke to Abram and Sarai. You know, they, they must have felt rebuked every time they heard Ishmael's name. God hears and sees. Nothing escapes his vision. He sees what's going on. And I, and I hope that understanding that God sees and hears is a comfort to you today instead of a rebuke. In verse 16, the last verse in our chapter, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now, interestingly enough, in the New Testament, we get some more insight into what's going on here in this chapter. Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 21 through 31, you can read it, that there's actually, this chapter is a picture of two covenants. The one is of the bondwoman, Hagar, and the other one is the free woman, Sarai. And the one born of the bondwoman represents the deeds of the flesh. And the one that was born of the free woman represents the new covenant that we have, the, the one born of promise. And Paul says the practical lesson here is, you know what? You wait on God. You don't get your flesh involved. When you fail to wait, it just confuses things. God gives us promises to hold on to, to hope in, and to wait for. And as I said before, we enter into those promises through faith and patience. And Paul tells us the flesh it's a picture of the law producing strife. And the other son, the one born of the free woman, is a picture of the new covenant we have in Christ that has nothing to do with us at all. We're not worthy of any of it, not even in the least. And God waits till Abram and Sarai, till their bodies are as good as dead, it tells us in Hebrews, so that he can birth uh, this miraculous event. Right? And again, it's just a picture of Jesus Christ. His love is so miraculous. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. Don't strain and strive to do Christian stuff. Just receive His love and rest in it. He's showered us with this love and grace upon each one of us. And you know what? We receive it by faith. If you're striving to make things happen, you know, it just creates problems. It just creates chaos. And the result is that you'll just feel like you need to run from it, which 
isn't the right thing to do according to this picture we've looked at. Paul tells us that it's all about the law and grace in this chapter. So just in closing, I just want to ask you, where are you tonight? You know what? God loves you. You know what? He sees you. He wants you to turn to Him and trust in Him in your circumstances because there's blessing and growth in your life there in those circumstances He has you in. And if you're not a believer tonight, God sees you too. His heart is that you would turn to Him, you know, in the brokenness over your sins, that you would turn to Him and allow Him to create in you something that is of value. The choice is yours. You know, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, his, he, would, he would cry out to you right now, just turn to me. Just let me love you. Ask me to forgive you of your sins and I'll forgive you. Ask me to cleanse you and I'll cleanse you. Ask me to receive you and I'll receive you and I'll make something wonderful of your life. I'll make a miracle of your life. If you'll just turn from your sins and turn to God, He'll meet you right there. All it takes is just to pray and to ask Him to come into your life, to forgive you of your sins. And then believe He died on the cross for you. Third day He rose again. And receive that truth, live that truth, turn towards God, and God will work in your life like nothing you could have ever imagined. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And I just pray again, Lord, would you encourage us through your word? Lord, it's such an amazing chapter. There's so much in it that, Lord, I, I can't begin to communicate, Lord, because I just don't have the ability. But Lord, I just pray you'd speak to each one of our hearts, Lord, of your love, of your grace, Lord, that we would just find ourselves under that spout where the grace comes out, just drink it in, refreshment, Lord, just drink in, you know, your encouragement and your strength and your love, Lord. For all my brothers and sisters, Lord, would you bless them. And for those that maybe are asking for forgiveness of their sins, Lord, would you meet them? And speak to their heart of your love. And let them know that you receive them, you forgive them, and you make them a new creation. And you want them to walk with you. God bless them in this new life, in this new walk. Lord, we, we just lift these things up to you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, if you've asked Christ to come into your heart, forgive you of your sins, you know, give us a call here at the church office. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to get a Bible in your hands. I'd love to answer any questions you may have and uh, just help you in this newfound walk with Jesus Christ. All right. God bless you all. Calvary Chapel uh, Church family, I'm praying for you. Boy, um, thank you for God just allowing me to be part of this family, Lord. I love this family. God bless you all. Have a great night.